Hey everyone, I'm JP Swenson, the fellow here on the Curious City team. Over the years, lots of you have asked us questions about LGBTQ life in Chicago. We've done stories about the history of queer traveling parties, Boys Town, now known as North Halstead, and even the dating scene. But this week, I want to bring you a story about another important element of gay and lesbian life, coming out of the closet. As a 23-year-old queer person living in Chicago, it can be easy to take the act of coming out for granted. Among my friends, it's a regular occurrence. And if you're listening to this, well, I may have just come out to you. And I feel fortunate that LGBTQ people and their allies fought hard so that the process of coming out could be a lot easier for someone like me. But that's not to say coming out is easy for everyone today. In fact, countless queer people across the country still don't feel comfortable or safe coming out. And that was even more true in the past. Next Tuesday is National Coming Out Day, which was first observed back in 1988. It was a day meant to raise awareness around LGBTQ rights and center queer people and their experiences. So, on this episode, we're marking the historic importance of this day by bringing you the stories of a number of people who for years hid a major part of their identity, but eventually came out later in life. I felt that uh, by sort of pretending or being straight, or at least straight enough to make a heterosexual marriage work was the thing uh, to do. It was, a, it was kind of a social compliance. That's coming up. Back in 2000, former WBEZ host Tony Sarabia produced an audio documentary called Unlocking the Closet. This week, we're pulling it out of the WBEZ archives. Tony came out later in life, and he wanted to share the stories of others who finally felt able to take this step. These stories were told by people who came of age in the 1950s or early 60s, which was a time when leading an openly gay life wasn't an option for a lot of people. Now, bear in mind, a lot has changed legally and culturally in the last 22 years, including the language we use when we talk about queer communities. The people you're about to hear from had never talked about their experiences in public before 2000 when Tony produced this special. And while a lot of things have changed, not all queer Americans have a safe space to come out. The stories you're about to hear while recounted more than 20 years ago, still reflect the experiences of many Americans today. From the time I was a teenager, there was something different about me. I knew this. The man you just heard from was 16 years old in 1950, growing up in a small northern Illinois town. A tall man with wavy gray hair and a mustache. He's now in his mid-60s. He's a recently retired teacher, married with two grown sons. He's also gay. Because he's out only to his wife and kids and doesn't want other people he knows to know about his homosexuality, he and his wife have requested their names be changed and voices altered. We'll call them Rick and Jill. Different wasn't acceptable, so I tried to fit in as well as I could, but being not very athletic, not very well coordinated, it was difficult to fit in. But I had buddies and, or, you know, one or two, not 
I was not the center of a crowd or even in a crowd, but I dated and I didn't deal with my feelings much at all. As a kid, Rick says he was a bookish nerd, not really wanting to be different from the other boys. He didn't feel different just because of a lack of interest in typical boys' play, but because of his desire to, as he puts it, check out other guys all the time without being obvious about it. But Rick says back then he never put the word homosexual to his desires. His perceptions of a homosexual mirrored what much of America thought in the 1950s. And so he says he never considered himself gay while growing up. My perception of what a gay guy would be like would be very much fairy-like. He would be very lightweight, very feminine, the lisping queen. And I wasn't that, so I felt kind of safe. Rick was briefly engaged to a woman while attending Northern Illinois University. In 1960, he met his present wife, who was teaching at the same school as Rick. They dated for two years, got married in 1962. And two years after we were married, he told me that he was interested in Tarzan movies and that he liked to look at men. He had never touched anyone. He's never had uh, an affair or anything. But he never said he was gay. And we were still having sexual relations, so I blocked it out of my mind. But Rick remembers it differently. He says he did tell his wife he was gay, the same time he told her about the Tarzan movies. But Jill says she doesn't remember ever hearing the word gay come out of Rick's mouth back then. Both do remember saying they loved each other, that this fondness for looking at men was just a small part of who Rick was, and that getting married was the thing to do. Without getting married, I would have had to explain to everybody why I wasn't. And in my family and in my part of society at that time, a confirmed bachelor was a suspicious person. You just didn't do that. You got married or you, you went to San Francisco or something. I believed that I could be a good husband and You know, I worried constantly about sex. I I was never good at it. Don't ask about the honeymoon. Adequate, but not good. It was just expected. I, I needed to be married because not being married would have raised so many questions. I'd have had to move away. He thought he could fool the world repress his homosexuality, and live what many people back then considered to be the American ideal, married with kids, house in the suburbs, and a good career. But he never expected to fool himself. Rick says he's never had sex with a man, came close one time, though, while in the Army. But he says both he and the other soldier got so scared that nothing ever happened. Rick eventually found an outlet lots of other married, closeted gay men have discovered since the Internet explosion, logging onto the numerous gay Internet sites out there. And like many of those men, it was a clandestine activity for Rick. One day in April of 1999, though, Jill came across an email Rick had sent to another man. The message began with the greeting to Tom, the best lover I've ever had, and then went on to describe a sexual fantasy. And then my world came crashing down. My world was not what it used to be. And it was horrendous. And at first, uh, every waking hour, sex was all I thought about because I thought, 
you know, I have really missed out, and now I know why I missed out, and it's not fair, and why me, and it was not a good last summer. Most days were not good. He wanted to be supportive, but yet he was who he was. But in my mind, I knew that he respected me as a person and still wanted me around. But boy, I would go into lingerie departments and I would just dissolve that I wasn't sexy to my husband. I wasn't attractive to him. And it hurts through and through. There are no official statistics on how many people in this country are married to gay spouses, knowingly or not. Author Amity Pierce Buxton, though, estimates there are about 2 million people who are or have been married to someone who is lesbian, gay, or bisexual. I think marriage doesn't contemplate this. Buxton is the author of The Other Side of the Closet, The Coming Out Crisis for Straight Spouses and Their Families, a book that takes a look at what happens to spouses when their partners come out. The California author's former husband is gay, They divorced in 1982 after being married for 25 years. The following year, he came out to her. I read a book called Now That You Know by Betty Fairchild, which was a parent's study of parents adjusting to their children. So I took the view that here my husband was finally able to reach his full potential. So I took a kind of a parent's view. He did what he thought was right to get married. How could I be angry at him? Buxton admits her benevolent response to her husband's revelation may be an exception. There are thousands of stories from straight spouses posted every day on the few existing online support groups, telling of confusion, shame, the inability to trust someone of the opposite sex, feelings of sexual rejection, and isolation. For a number of these people, hearing their gay spouses tell them the reason they got married was because they were in love and thought a marriage would make things all right, just doesn't wash. I can't accept that. I find that absolutely self-serving and almost uh, sociopathic because I understand that one cannot change or help, you know, what their gender preference is. I have absolutely no problems with that. But how one manifests it and what one does with their life from that point on I think, is within every person's control, just as any other action would be. And to involve someone else, a, an unwitting victim in a way, um, into, the, into this, it's a sham, actually. And to create a, a, a pseudo-family and pretend you're someone you're not and suddenly explode this whole myth to your family is disastrous. That 60-year-old woman from New Jersey had a massive heart attack and nervous breakdown after her husband of 29 years came out to her five years ago. Months after that, he told her he's HIV positive. So far, she's not tested positive. They're now divorced. Author Amity Pierce Buxton believes along with the shock, 
anger, disbelief, and sadness that comes when they find out their partner is gay, the straight spouse can also, in time, feel a sense of relief. The relief is that you can rewrite the history of your marriage and now you know that you weren't the one that was at fault when you think you were the one that was sexually inadequate along the way. In other words, there was an actual sexual mismatch between the two spouses. There was nothing you could do with it. You're just the wrong gender. So the relief means just relief and in, in, in you're, you're okay. The stages are um, the shock and the relief and, and the hurting and the pain for feeling you were deceived and pretty stupid for not figuring it out. And then facing the fact that this coming out is not he, this person is not going to change back into being heterosexual and that you're hurt. What usually follows, according to Buxton's research, is a divorce, sometimes immediately. But she says there are exceptions, like Jill and Rick. Oh, it takes a lot of accommodation on both their parts. The wife particularly has to be pretty flexible to um, let her husband either just have gay friends and socialize with them or to have a lover. Rick says he doesn't have a gay lover or a circle of gay friends. That helps Jill cope with her unusual marriage. She also has a couple of mantras to help her deal with being married to a gay man. She tells herself Rick's a good husband and that she's enjoyed and still enjoys a good life with him. But there are many moments, little things, she says, when she's reminded her marriage is not quite the way she'd hoped it would be. Well, I couldn't sleep. And I was awake lots in the night, and that's bad, because then you think of all the things that instead of sleeping. And then he got up in the morning, and I hadn't had a lot of sleep, and he got out of bed, and he didn't know I was awake, but it woke me up as he got up, and the first thing he did was went down to check and see if any of his friends were online or if he had a letter from them. And that just makes you feel like you're not that important. And he tells me I'm important. I know I am. I know he wants to talk to his friends. But still, these old things in your head that say, I'm not number one, when basically I am. Jill says she and Rick have become better friends since his coming out, more affectionate, but there's no sex. There were times throughout my interview with Jill and Rick where she would put her arm around him, rub his shoulder or pat him on the knee. He didn't reciprocate. Statistically, Rick and Jill have an uphill battle. Author Amity Pierce Buxton says of the small number of mixed orientation marriages that attempt to remain intact after one of the spouses comes out, only about 7% survive. More from Unlocking the Closet after this. My name is Patricia, I'm 51 years old, and I am a part-time account manager. I married a wonderful man in 1972, and we lived a happy life. We had, like lots of other couples, we had our ups and downs and our struggles, but um, we seemed to do very well together. We had common interests, such as, uh, oh, golfing, traveling, um, we seemed to be like-minded. Uh, we had three children, which we raised. Um, 
we were active in our community. We lived in a small town in the West, and we were both uh, active citizens, you might say, participated in the community, were fairly well known in the community. Patricia says back then she never felt like there was something missing in her life. She would feel otherwise in the months after her husband came home with a computer in the spring of 1996. Initially, Patricia wondered why she and her husband needed a computer. But eventually, like many people who discovered the Internet, she found herself spending lots of time logged on. Her favorite site was a women's writing group. That's where Patricia met Anna, a single woman about her own age who lived thousands of miles away. By December of the same year, 1996, even my husband realized that Anna was the best friend that I had in this world. He recognized that. Even though I'd never met her in, in real life, he recognized, well, for one thing, he found he was sitting in the living room alone while I was, you know, all my spare time, I was in there on the computer and I was either composing a letter to her or talking to her in, in person. And uh, in fact, I can remember, uh, we used to joke back and forth too and Peals of laughter would come from the computer room, and I can remember him one time saying it ought to be illegal to have that much fun on a computer. So he did understand that whatever was going on was very important in my life. Patricia and Anna would soon be spending six hours a day or more together online. In March of 1997, on the night before her 25th wedding anniversary, Patricia says strange new feelings overcame her. Eventually, I realized they were turned on feelings. And I didn't understand this. I thought it was very strange to be feeling that way. So the night, that night, uh, I actually attacked my husband in, in bed, you know, which usually he was always the one that did the suggesting. But this time I attacked him while well, he was not unwilling. And But later he f- went to sleep happily, and I lay there thinking, that's not it. That's not it. I still feel these feelings. And then I realized when I was feeling these feelings was when I was thinking about Anna. At first, Patricia was hoping those feelings would go away. She was very confused. Before she began experiencing those feelings for Anna, before she realized she was in love with her, the two had planned on meeting in person in July of 1997. I allowed myself to start thinking about what if, what if we got together and I said to her something like, want to take a shower? Well, that was it. That was absolutely it. Once I opened that door and allowed myself to say what if and envision it, then that was it. I knew it had to be. And it was. And it was the most wonderful um, experience of my life. Um, I want to say that these feelings, uh, I never had them before for any woman. I recognized I was in love with her in all the other ways before these feelings ever arrived. These feelings, I think, were more or less the hammer that hit me over the head. They were the last things to arrive. All the other things were in place. We'd known each other 
intimately for almost a year at this point, just as friends. And so this sexual part was the very last thing. But when it was in place, then the whole picture emerged of, of how I felt about her. By August, Patricia's husband knew something was going on and pressed her for information. Believe it or not, 25 years married to a person and I didn't know what he would do. I was afraid. He'd, he'd never been violent to me, but I was afraid of that. He'd never been unreasonable, but I was afraid of that. I knew that one day he would demand to know in such a way that I would have to answer. And sure enough, that day did happen. He said, we are not leaving this room until you tell me what is going on. He said, I don't care what else happens. We are not leaving this room until you tell me. So I said, okay, what do you want to know? And he said, are you in love with Anna? I said, yes, I am. And then he said, is Anna a man? And I laughed. That was so funny to me. And I said, no, she isn't. And his reaction to that was relief. And even he thought that was odd. He said, this is funny because, I, you know, it doesn't bother me because she's a woman. I know it would bother me if she was a man. But he said, somehow, because it's a woman, I, I guess I know I just can't compete or something. Patricia's coming out actually took place in a hotel room while she and her husband were on a trip to Germany. They would not be among the small number of married couples who try to stay together when one of the spouses is gay or lesbian. Patricia's life took a 180-degree turn rather quickly. She and her husband returned from Germany in early October. Two weeks later, she was packing her things and getting ready to move in with Anna. Patricia says her husband helped her pack, telling her not to be too proud to come back if she found out her new life wasn't meant to be. She says he was hoping this was a phase she was going through. Though in love with Anna, Patricia didn't immediately identify herself as a lesbian. She says at first she thought she had fallen in love with a wonderful person and that she would have fallen in love with Anna if she were a man or a woman. That was what I had thought at first. And that's what I thought right up until after we'd lived together for, oh, a couple of months. And then one morning I woke up and I thought to myself, damn, I'm glad she's a woman. <laughs> You know, I realized that really played into it, the fact that she is a woman. I enjoyed that very much. And so then slowly I realized, guess what? I guess I am. Before leaving for Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where she and Anna now live, Patricia came out to some friends, as well as her three grown children. She says her youngest son took the news the hardest, blaming Anna for the breakup of the family. He still refuses to meet his mother's partner. Her oldest daughter, Hallie, though, says she never felt angry. In fact, my husband and I say our little girls all growed up because she's suddenly becoming this woman that if I wasn't her daughter, I, like, I would really want to get to know her and become friends with her. She's, um, she's going to like movies that I would want to go to. She used to go to you know strictly blockbuster movies, and now she's going into a lot of um, other, other sorts of movies, and she 
goes to Lilith Fair, of all things, and that's something that she, I don't think she ever would have previously done. She's just kind of suddenly blossoming. She's doing poetry readings, and this is all something she, the the town where I grew up in is um, uh, very, very conservative, and it's very insulated, so to speak, and, and so uh, she's suddenly, she's, I can't think of another term other than blossoming into this new woman. David Wilcox is a 40-year-old advertising executive who lives in Chicago. He's been with his partner for five and a half years. He came out when he was in his early 30s. The thought of coming out to one's parents can be a scary thing. It was for David. He was prepared for one of two responses when he came out to his dad, George. He figured his dad would tell him either, this changes nothing, or I never want to see you again because you're gay. The only thing I wasn't prepared for was when he said, so am I. David's dad, George. I just simply couldn't resist the, um, the, uh, the action that I took and uh, just told him that I was also because I didn't think it was, I guess in the moment, I didn't think it would be fair uh, not to do so. Uh, George Wilcox. Um, I currently live in North Carolina. I'm 73 years old. And uh, I guess my story really begins um, back in, uh, in April of 1956 when, uh, when uh, I married a very wonderful woman. Um, her name was Janet. And, and for me, it was the uh, kind of a, it became, I guess, the, the socially appointed time uh, to be straight because I was not terribly active prior to getting married, but I, you know, fooled around, as the expression uh, goes, up to that point. And I felt that uh, by sort of pretending or being straight, or at least straight enough to make a heterosexual marriage work was the thing uh, to do. It was, a, it was kind of a social compliance. Um, and I felt good at the time about uh, joining my friends and business associates and neighbors and, and family in that only um, uh, world that was acceptable um, and admired. Uh, um, and I, you know, I think I felt terribly good about myself uh, to have all these people uh, pleased that I'd joined uh, their, their ranks. And in so doing, as I have said many times, um, I think I suppressed... Uh, this homosexuality it just it just you know was put in the closet and and uh, I threw the key away. But George retrieved the key, unlocked the closet, and came back out after his wife died at fifty-one. Like Patricia's, George's life changed almost completely. He found it easy to make the transition, even at his age. He moved to Chicago's gay neighborhood, quickly established a small circle of gay friends, and began dating. But unlike Patricia, it was a while, almost a decade after surprising his son David, that he told his other grown children and the rest of the family that he's gay. Even though George didn't begin living as a gay man again until after his wife's death, David says he felt sad for his mom when he found out his dad was gay. He says it was like his mom had been duped. He recalls times when his mother thought the spark had gone out of the marriage because of her one time saying she didn't think she was attractive anymore to George. Certainly the tragic and painful loss of her at such an early age was what allowed dad to be who he really is and so in some ways her 
early, you know, her much too soon uh, passing gave him an opportunity. She gave him an opportunity um, unknowingly um, to be himself. And I think that's a, a, a wonderful thing. And so that's how I've made peace with it. And, and that wasn't that hard. Hey, it's JP again. That audio documentary, Unlocking the Closet, was produced back in 2000 by Tony Sarabia, a longtime host for WBEZ. And one quick thing before we finish up today's episode. The days are getting shorter, and the spooky decorations are going up everywhere. Which means we're getting closer to one of our favorite times of year, Halloween. And we need your help. Do you suspect your own house is haunted? Or have scary noises or strange occurrences prompted you to take some action? Perhaps you've done a little armchair research and dug into the history of your home and found something revealing. These are the kinds of stories that intrigue us, and we want to hear from you. If your story makes us shiver, Curious City might come out to see you and your otherworldly visitors. Leave us a voicemail message at 888-789-7752. That's 888-789-7752. Or you can find us online at wbez.org slash hauntedhouses. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. Joe Dassault and Jason Mark produced the show. Adriana Cardona-Magigad is our reporter. Maggie Civit is our digital and engagement producer. And Alexandra Solomon is our editor. I'm Luminary Fellow J.P. Swenson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.